Well, we come to the night. We've just about reached the night of the betrayal when Jesus will be taken and when he'll be scourged and when he will be hung upon the cross. Well, the night before all that, the scripture says, was the day, the first day of unleavened bread. A lot of people get confused about this. I'll try to alleviate any confusion that I can. The Passover basically covered three feasts. The Passover covered the Passover, the Peshach. It covered the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted seven days, and the Feast of First Fruits. And so each of these feasts could be included in the phrase to celebrate the Passover. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the first day of the Passover season. And the time had come... And in that time, the disciples come to Jesus knowing that they're going to celebrate Passover. We see every male that was 20 years age or older, it was mandatory that they would go back to Jerusalem for three feasts. And Passover was one of those. So they knew that they were going to celebrate Passover. They knew that the Lord would would have something in mind. And so the disciples, they come to Him and they ask that question. On that first day... Of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Scripture declares to us, they said, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And just like every single time we have a question of the Lord, Jesus had an answer. He had a plan. He had a purpose. He knew what He was going to do. And He knew how it was going to be done. In fact, the Scripture declares to us, He said, Go into the city to a certain man. I often wonder what it was like for that guy. The Bible doesn't tell us who he was. They went to a certain man. They walked up to this certain man. And they said, The teacher has said his time has come. It's his last meal. His last meal will be the Passover meal. Fitting for the Passover lamb to partake in the Passover meal as his final meal. Go into the city and say, my time is at hand. I will keep the the Passover at your house with my disciples. Well, the scripture tells us that the, the disciples did that. They were obedient to what it was that God wanted to do, that the Lord was leading them to. As we take a look at, at some of the, uh, the other gospel accounts of this time, hopefully it, it illuminates some things on the, on the preparation. In fact, in Mark chapter 14, in Mark 14 verse 12, it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb. The Bible tells that was the day that they would kill the Passover lamb, the first day of unleavened bread. His disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Again, in Luke chapter 22, verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. It's kind of interesting in Luke that it names two. It names Peter and John. You see, there was a rule at those days because the city of Jerusalem would swell so much during the time of Passover. So many people would come into the city. Even though each lamb could be utilized for a family of ten, only two from that family would go and prepare the lamb for sacrifice. 
So the Lord says, Peter and John, go prepare. Go, go make ready for this, this moment, this time. And so they prepared. They got ready. They got ready for the Passover. They think it's just another day. They think it's just another meal. Celebrating all that God had done for them in the past. It's this Passover meal. They have no idea what the next 24 hours are going to hold for them. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows and, and He lays it out for them. So in verse 19 it says, So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when evening had come, He sat down with the twelve. Man, so much stuff happens in this night. So many things. The Last Supper. Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. All of these things are going to occur during this last 24-hour period of time leading up to the cross. And, and as the preparation has been made, and as they've gathered together with the twelve, the Scripture tells us, it lays out for us, Jesus says to them, as they were eating, Assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Well, Jesus had talked about this before, but you remember they would always kind of get deaf, dumb, and blind when Jesus would begin to talk about His betrayal and the scourging and the crucifixion. For some reason they just couldn't grasp it. So He tells them again, He tells them again that one of us, not one of them, one of us, one of those reclining in this place, one of those eating at this table, It's going to betray me. The betrayal came from the twelve that Jesus chose. And there's this incredible impact that we can read that occurs upon the disciples. As we go on, it says, And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? In the Greek, that phrase, Lord is it I, is, is said in such a way that it would demand a negative answer. In other words, it, it, surely it's not me, Lord. Surely it's not me. Each one would, would repeat that same phrase. Surely, Lord, not me. You know, I know, I know my heart, Lord. In fact, in John chapter 13, why don't you turn there, because we're going to hang out in John chapter 13 for a couple of minutes, but, In John chapter 13, verse 22, it says, Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. That means that after Jesus said this, One of you will betray me. And they began to say, Surely it's not me. They started to look at each other. Well, Lord, it could be Matthew. He's a tax collector. I was never really sure about him in the first place. Lord, It might be Peter. He has always got something to say. And it's not often what the Lord would have him say. Surely, he must be. They began to look at each other with these crazy ideas about who was it. Who? Which of us? Reality is, there was one. But they should have been looking in the mirror. They should have been looking in the mirror because every single one of them is going to leave him. 
But they began to look at one another. In fact, if you look at John 13, from verse 23 down, we'll read. It says, And now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John, in the, in the Gospel of John, never names himself. So we know that this is John. John, the apostle of love, one time was a son of thunder, now he's the apostle of love, and he is reclining right next to Jesus. In those days, when they would eat, they didn't eat around a table like we do. The table is much lower, and so they would recline at the table. You'd lay down your, your head toward the, this table, your feet back away. That's why when the scripture tells the stories about a woman coming and washing his feet, that's how she could get to his feet. They were behind him at the, and so Jesus walked up behind him to wash his feet. So they were lying there, and as Jesus is lying there, he would, he would rest on his right arm and, and pick uh, from the meal with his left, and to, and to his uh, right and left were respectively Judas and John. The Bible says that John rested upon the breast of Jesus. So he was leaning in. All he had to do to be close to Jesus was just to kind of roll back and he'd be able to to talk to them. Their heads would be right there together. And there's all this confusion about who is it, who's the one. But listen, the scripture gives a little insight. It tells us that one person beside Judas knew who the betrayer was going to be. The Bible goes on to tell us in John chapter 13. Simon Peter therefore mentioned to him to ask, of whom is it? That he speaks. So Peter's next to John and he leans over to John and says, John, find out who it is. Ask the Lord who it is. So he, so then John, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, this would not be abnormal at the meal. Jesus would have dipped bread for every one of the disciples. Just as he would wash the feet of every one of the disciples in the time of washing for the Passover meal while they were arguing about who was the greatest. Jesus would have washed their feet. He would have dipped for all of them. But at this particular moment, as John leans close, Jesus says, it's the one I'm giving the bread to now. So he dipped the bread and he handed it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Scripture says in John chapter 13, Satan entered him. That's important to understand. Occasionally, people, when they consider... Judas Iscariot and his betrayal, they have a concept that he didn't have any choice. John chapter 13 tells us that he had all the choice in the world. He made it. Prior to John chapter 13, in fact, in, in Matthew 26, just prior to the section that we're in today, the scripture tells us that Judas had already made a deal. He made a deal with the high priest for 30 pieces of silver. He had made his choice. He made his decision. His path was set. While all the other disciples are saying, Surely it's not me, Lord. Judas is the only one there who knows who it is. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he knows. Because it's him. 
And in that passing of the bread, even as Jesus has Judas in a place of honor, even as He's passing, serving Him, even as He washed His feet, He had opportunity to choose. He chose. And the Scripture tells us Satan entered in. He moved in and inhabited the body of Judas. And the scripture tells us that Jesus then said to him, What you do, do quickly. But listen to this phrase. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. So Jesus says to John, Hey, it's the guy I give the bread to. He gives the bread to Judas. Apparently, there was something so pious about Judas's life that they had a hard time grasping the concept that it could be him. So, so John's kind of toying with the concept, thinking about, wow, the Lord's saying it's him. And the Lord says, Judas, what you have to do, go do quickly. And Judas gets up to go. Nobody knows what he's doing. In fact, the scripture tells us what they thought. They say they thought in verse 29, for some thought because Judas had the money box. And Jesus said, go buy those things we need. There's things yet we need for the feast. Or maybe that he should give something to the poor. So Judas got up and left, walked out of their midst. But it's important to realize that that occurred before Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body. See, Judas was never one of them. The scripture tells us Judas never believed. He was there. He looked like everybody else. He was pious. Everybody thought he had it all together. And everybody, when they looked at his life, would have said, he's a good person. But he was the betrayer of the Lord. Man, people still understand what it is if you say to them that they are a Judas. Is there anybody that doesn't know what that would mean? Man, they, they can understand exactly what's being said, exactly what's going on. But when we talk about this, when we think about the identity of the betrayer, there's three things that we have to understand about the identity of the the betrayer. The first, the first that we want to grasp and that we want to hold on to, we want to know that that betrayal was a work of Satan. Satan was a part of the betrayal of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 22, in verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. One of the twelve whom Jesus chose. Satan was entering into one who was numbered with him. It's a work of Satan, but it's not just that. It's not just that. Because it is also the will of God. It was the will of God. The scripture tells us in John chapter 6, verse 70, it says, Jesus said to them, Did I not choose you, the twelve And one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Now I want you to understand that when Jesus said that, it may never have entered into Judas' mind yet that he would betray Christ. But God knew one of the twelve would betray him was the will of God. The psalmist wrote about it. In Psalm 41, verse 9, we have a scripture that alludes to the betrayer. In fact, it's one that the scripture talks about. And it is even quoted um, in Psalm 
41.9, the, the scripture lays out that the one who was my friend has lifted his heel against me. The Bible tells us. Why? Because the third thing that we want to remember is it is the word of God that is being fulfilled. It's a work of Satan. It is the will of God and it is the fulfillment of God's word. All three of those things are working behind the scenes in one man's choice. To betray. God knew Judas made the choice. It was the word of God being fulfilled. In John 13 verse 18, if you're still there, just look down a little ways. It says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41, 9 is where that's taken from. The, the psalmist, David, is writing about Ahithophel. Ahithophel betrayed David when David's son Absalom came to power. Absalom's trying to take over the kingdom from David. And as he comes into power, David's most trusted counselor joins his son Absalom in the rebellion. And people ask why. Why would he do it? All we have to do is look at the genealogies. It tells us. You know those boring things where who begat what? Yeah, that nobody likes to go through. In the genealogy, it tells us that Ahithophel had a granddaughter. Her name was Bathsheba. She had a husband named Uriah. And Ahithophel had never forgiven David for killing Uriah and taking his granddaughter. And because he had never forgiven, when the moment came, the opportunity for betrayal came, Ahithophel took it. He's a type of Judas. Bible doesn't tell us what Judas's beef was. We can only guess, you know, and there's really no point in doing that. But what we understand is in some way, for Judas, God had disappointed him. Now, if that is the, the benchmark, the test for those who would betray God, which of us couldn't find ourselves in the same place? Or would you say you've never been disappointed with God? But Judas made a choice to betray Jesus Christ. And so the scripture tells us that, that he would have got up and that he would have left. He would have left during this time in, in Matthew chapter 26. He would have got up. But before he left, he would have said the height of his hypocrisy. Rabbi, surely it's not me. Surely it's not me. Knowing he had 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. He'd already made the decision. He chose to lie. He chose to betray. Satan entered into him. And he left. And just like every time something like this happens, Satan entered into him and used him and discarded him when it was over. Didn't he? Because at the end, Judas is left with his choice and what he had done. The regret of that choice, but the unwillingness to, to find what is offered in repentance. He's discarded. That's what the devil does. He uses you up and discards you. Throws you to the side. 
And that's exactly what he's going to do to Judas, the betrayer of our Lord. But then as we go on, the scripture lays out for us in verse 26. And as they were eating, now this is what that tells us. As they were eating means that they were already partway through. They were already partway through the Passover meal. They had already been uh, uh, celebrating Passover. They had already been following the Seder, which simply means the, the order that they would eat the Passover. In fact, I'd encourage you, if you, if you want to understand a little bit more about uh, the Passover and Christ in the Passover, there's at least two opportunities. One is a great book called Christ in the Passover. The second is we as a fellowship celebrate the Passover every year at Passover. It's one of those things the Lord told us to do. He never got together and said, I want you guys to celebrate Christmas. But he did mention celebrating the Passover. So we celebrate the Passover. A great opportunity to understand a little bit more about this meal. Well, I'm just going to give you some of the, the highlights of it as we take a look. But we know that they're already eating. As they were eating... As they were eating. So as we come to the partaking of the bread and the cup, we come to the timing. The scripture lays out for us that the first cup is the cup of thanksgiving. And the Passover is going to follow Exodus chapter 6, verses 6, 7, and 8. It's going to follow uh, this system. I'm going to to read it out for you, hopefully. Uh, It'll help shed some light. But the scripture tells in Luke that Jesus gave thanks the very first thing is the, the cup of thanksgiving. In Exodus 6, 6, it says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out. The thankfulness for the, the things that God had done, specifically bringing them out of bondage to, the, to Egypt and in to the freedom that ultimately they would find in the promised land. So the first cup would be the cup of thanksgiving. The second cup is a cup of plagues. Exodus 6, 6 goes on to say, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. The cup of plagues or the cup of afflictions. Interesting, the cup of affliction when you have a Passover meal, it's a cup that you dip your finger in. You'll dip your finger in and flick it. You're going to do it ten times. One for each of the plagues that the Lord brought. Because by those plagues, God would set his children free. But as we look at those plagues, I would often wonder, why do we put our finger in it? Why do we dip our finger and, and flick our finger? Well, you see, when the Lord brought the plagues in Exodus eight eighteen, it says, Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So lice were on man and beast. So the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed, just as the Lord had said. So just as the scripture lays out, it was the finger of God. We put our finger in the cup, and we, and we dip our finger, and we, and we flick it or tap it to the, to the napkin, one for each of the ten plagues. But that was part of the meal. Then the third cup is the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption, it says in Exodus 6, 6, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, 
And then I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will redeem you. In Luke 22.20 it says, Likewise he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant of my blood which is shed for you. The cup after supper is the third cup, the cup of redemption. Redemption that Jesus Christ is going to wrought for us all at the cross. This is where we find ourselves in the story. There's a fourth cup. The fourth cup, they don't partake of at the supper, at the last supper. Because Jesus says, I will not taste of the fruit of this vine until I have it together with you in my Father's kingdom. So the fourth cup they don't partake of. The fourth cup is called the cup of blessing. And the cup of blessing we find in Exodus 6, 7. It says, and I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Emphasizes the time in which Jesus Christ will be king. One day we will share that cup together. The cup of blessing. There's also a fifth cup. The fifth cup is Elijah's cup. Elijah's cup is never drank. Sometimes it's it's poured out. But Elijah's cup speaks of the promises of God that are not yet fulfilled. In fact, they'll go and open the door to see if Elijah has come. The, the, the Bible, the scripture lays out for us in Malachi that before Jesus would return, Elijah would come. So they open the door to see if Elijah is there. Symbolically remembering the promises of God. Yet unfulfilled, but that will be fulfilled. And then that cup would be poured out in that place. Another interesting thing that people like to argue about. I remember when I was growing up in church, my dad had like a two and a half hour argument in the parking lot over whether or not the the Lord used grape juice or wine. Let me simplify it for you real easy. Who cares? People like to say, well, the Lord said wine. Yes, he did. Rabbis, according to the rabbinical teachings, the rabbis were taught that part of the Passover there could be no leaven, and on the lamb there could be no spot or blemish. So they would say of the wine, it was to be diluted three parts water, one part wine. So that there would be no blemish. So the argument is moot. It was washed down, thin, red water. Isn't it funny how we can argue about dumb stuff? So we find ourselves at the end of the supper... At the cup of redemption. There's a a, a neat thing that began uh, after the destruction of the temple. At the beginning of Passover, there would be there at at the table three pieces of matzah. Matzah is what we have when we have communion. If you've ever looked at the cracker... The matzah, because of the way it's, it's made, it has stripes on it. And those stripes speak of the stripes that were upon the back of Jesus Christ. By His stripes we are healed. 
And because of the way it's made, the, the, the holes in it are square holes, like the nails that would have been used to, to hold Jesus to the cross. But that's the same bread that they've used since the beginning of time, the matzah. There would have been three pieces of matzah together. If you, if you actually go to the Jewish book of Y, I, I, I don't know if you knew there was such a thing. There is such a thing as the Jewish book of Y. You can ask it. Well, you, the book doesn't talk, but you know what I mean. You look it up. <laughs> you look it up and it'll tell you. The Jewish book of Y says that those three pieces of bread uh, represent the scribes, the priests, and the Pharisees. That's the lamest thing I've ever heard in my life. Well, second lamest thing I've ever heard in my life. And if you ask the rabbis in Jerusalem, they will tell you what they always tell you. If you've ever been to Israel and you ask them a question about that, they will tell you it is tradition. Just like Fiddler on the Roof. It's not too much different. They might even sing it. Tradition. They'll say tradition. Ever since the destruction of the temple, it's been that way. Three pieces of bread. Well, I'll tell you what I see. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All contained in one napkin. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They open it up at the beginning and they take the second loaf. They don't know why they pull out the second piece of matzah. It's tradition. But they pull out the second piece, which would be the piece that would represent the Son. And they break it. They take the smaller piece and they wrap it in a napkin and they hide it. And later on, they'll send a young one to go find it. They call it the afikomen. I always heard the afikomen, that's, a, that's what comes later. But if you, if you ask those who are, are Jewish about the afikomen, they call it dessert. That's what comes later, by the way. At least that's what my parents always told me when I was sitting down for dinner. And I wanted a bowl of ice cream and they would say that comes later. Afikomen. And when that piece is brought back to the meal, that piece is taken, that broken piece of bread. And each of the people there at the table break off a piece. Off of one loaf or one piece of matzah. They each break a piece from it. And they have it together. Ever since the destruction of the temple, that's when they can see it. I'm not so sure it didn't happen first when Jesus was breaking bread for his disciples. I'm not so sure that's not where it started. Where he broke the bread. We look at the scripture and the scripture lays out for us. What is this? What is it that the, that the bread is, is laying out for us? What does the bread represent? Well, the bread represents his, his physical body. Jesus told us that. In fact, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, it says, When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. It represents his physical body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In 1 Peter 2, 
Verse 24, it says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live together in righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. The matzah, the bread that Jesus broke, represented his physical body. But it's more than that. It also represents his sinless body, for that bread is unleavened. There is no leaven. Leaven represents sin in the scripture. The feast of unleavened bread was the time when they would go through their whole house and meticulously clean every part of that house to make sure that there was no leaven anywhere. So it speaks of his physical body. It speaks of his sinless body. We can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is struggling with an issue of allowing sinfulness within the body. And Paul would say, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He he speaks of that sinlessness of Jesus Christ. When we look at the bread, it represents his physical body. It represents the fact that he is sinless, perfect, that perfect sacrifice. Theological terms is called the impeccability of Jesus. He's perfect, utterly without sin. And you know, when you start talking about things like that, the impeccability of Christ or the fact that he's utterly without sin, you know what Christians do? They argue again. I wish we would stop that. One side will say he never could sin. He, it was impossible for him to sin. And the other side will say, well, he could have sinned. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been tempted. Once again, that's stupid. We have so much time left in our life. We, we need to argue over that. Let me, let me hopefully clarify it for you. Whether or not someone can sin is immaterial to the ability to be tempted. I'll ask you a question in our own lives. Which guy had the harder temptation? The one who fell or the one who endured? Because when that temptation comes and I fall on the first swipe of the axe, I just fall right away, I will say I have not endured very much temptation. But when that first swipe comes and I endure through that temptation and I persevere and I endure and I do not stumble or fall into sin, then I have endured temptation. It doesn't matter. But whether or not he was able to sin is immaterial for his ability to be able to relate to us who have been tempted. Because he withheld it all. He withstood every temptation that came his way. And the Bible says he was tempted in all ways, even as we ourselves are. Yet what? Without sin. Perfect. The bread speaks of of his broken body. The bread speaks of his sinless body. But there's one more thing that the bread speaks of, and I don't want us to miss it. And that is, it speaks of our unity. 
It speaks of our unity in Christ. Why? Because that bread, we all partake from the same bread. We all partake of the same body. It's the body of Christ. Whether we have communion here and share in the Lord's Supper or someone shares in the Lord's Supper or somewhere else, we are all having that fellowship into one body. The body of Jesus Christ. It speaks of our unity as believers. Our unity that we can have in Christ and through Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, The cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We have unity, and our unity is not going to be in anything but in Christ. Any more than we all eat the same things, drive the same things, or live in the same way. But our unity is in Christ. It speaks of the unity of the body. When Jesus broke the bread, each of the disciples that were there, remember Judas is gone. The true believers are there. And they all partake of the one body. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Unless you are part of my body, unless I am part of you, you have no part of of me. The whole concept is that idea of having that fellowship together, having that fellowship together when the bread, it brings that unity. It brings that unity. But as we go on, not only did he take and break the bread and say, take, eat, this is my body. But then he took the cup, the cup of redemption. The cup that speaks of God's redemption of the nation of Israel in the Passover meal, Jesus took and said, this is a cup of my blood in the new covenant, the new testament, the new deal that I have laid out before you that Jeremiah spoke of in Jeremiah chapter 31. What is it that the cup represents? It represents the shed blood of Jesus that has been shed for our sins. The scripture tells us in verse 28 in Matthew 26, it said, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. It represents his shed blood. Pure. Undefiled. Without blemish. The pure Blood that washes us clean. That's what the cup of redemption represents. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, the scripture tells us, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions of your fathers, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Washed white as snow by the blood of the Lamb. The scripture has taught since the beginning that without the shedding of blood, what? There is no remission of sin. Without sacrifice, there can be no relationship with God. Without sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us, 
I love this scripture. It says, God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. From the beginning, the scripture declared that there had to be a sacrifice for there to be a relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that sacrifice was God in the flesh. God in Christ. Sacrificed for us that we could be reconciled. That we could have a relationship with Him. He becomes that perfect sacrifice that the scriptures had always talked about. It represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But it also represents our faith. Our ability to trust Him. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Every time we have that cup touch our lips. It should remind us that the Lord has called us to remember Him until what? Until He come. It reminds us of our faith. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, it says, In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Listen, one thing, one thing, there's, there's one thing that we are to be about as believers. That's the gospel, and that's proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. It's not arguing about wine or grape juice. It's not arguing about the finer points of theology, though I think they have their place, the finer points of theology. I actually enjoyed those studies. But our place is to proclaim the Lord's death, that Jesus died for me, that He was buried, that He rose again on the third day, that He has washed me clean by faith, Because I put my trust in the sacrifice that Jesus has made for me. I partake of the one body of Christ. I am baptized into the body of Christ. I am baptized in the fellowship of believers. I am one. That we're to be be focused in that area. We spend a lot of time arguing about a lot of things. And a lot of those things have their place. And a lot of those things God's going to use to encourage or excite one person or another. But he said, we're supposed to be proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. He's not here yet. So we still have time. Proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. That that faith that God is calling us to. And listen, Jesus wrote about it in John chapter 6. Jesus said to them in verse 53... Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up that last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. So he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. The point of that subject was 
After Jesus said that, everybody left. They said, this is a hard saying, and who can understand it? Well, Jesus didn't really want people to start walking up to him and take a bite out of his shoulder. What Jesus was saying is, I have to abide in you. The the clearest way to understand someone living in you is to understand what it is to eat. In in about ten minutes, I'm going to go have a hamburger with mustard and ketchup. And if I can find jalapenos, it'll have jalapenos on it too. I don't know if there's any bacon out there. I I don't want to get my hopes up too high. (laughs) So there might not be any bacon. And I'm going to take a bite of that hamburger. And it is going to become a part of me. Now I can take that hamburger and I can set it on a plate. And I can take pictures of it from every angle. And I can study about the hamburger. And I can study about where the bun came from. And I have all kind of useless information. And I can study about where the cheese came from that went on to the hamburger. And I can study about where that ketchup comes from and what that mustard represents. And I can know everything there is to know about a hamburger. And it never be in me. Jesus said, You have to eat of my flesh. Drink of my blood. I have to be in you. I will abide in you. This is what he's calling them to. This is what we, every time we sit down for the Lord's Supper, that's, that's what it represents, don't you see? When we take the body of Christ, we're saying, He is in me, and I'm celebrating His death, burial, and resurrection until He returns. And when I drink of that cup, I'm celebrating, I'm saying, He is in me. That's why Paul says, examine yourself, lest you be of the faith. Lest you... Eat or drink condemnation unto yourself. Now every once in a while I hear believers say, you know, I had a bad attitude today so I didn't take communion. He's not talking about whether or not you have a bad attitude. He's not talking about whether or not you have sin. He's talking about whether or not you are of the faith. Whether you believe. Whether or not Christ is in you. Because what you are proclaiming by partaking in communion is the Lord's death until He comes. And when He comes, if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, if you've never asked Him to be your Lord and Savior, He's going to say, depart from me, you accursed, for I never knew you. And you're going to say, what do you mean, Lord, you never knew me? And the Lord's going to say, did you ever have communion? Did you ever enjoy the Lord's Supper? Did you ever eat of my flesh and drink of my blood? But you never knew who I was. You never entrusted your life to me. So you have ate and drank condemnation or damnation upon yourself. That's what he means when he says examine yourself. That you are of the faith. So the cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ. It represents the faith that God is calling us to. But but there's one more thing that I really want to bring our, our focus to. And that is it represents the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. The unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Written out for us in the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. That God said, you know my people they keep messing up. So I will... Write my law on their hearts. So I will 
give them my spirit. So I will become their sacrifice. So I will redeem them. You read the new covenant and try to find a you will in it. You won't. Because it represents the unconditional love of God. He did it all. All we have to do is cash the check. It's written. It's been handed to us. We can put it on a shelf. Or we can cash it and put it in the account. But it represents that love of God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this is what they say church is supposed to be. People wonder, what's church supposed to be? Let me help you. Acts 2, 42, the, the apostles continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's the teaching of the word. In fellowship, that's koinonia. By the way, that word fellowship also is speaking of the Lord's Supper, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. What is church supposed to be? A place where we study the word of God. What is church supposed to be? It's supposed to be a place of fellowship where we have things in common like the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us clean. A place where we can come to be encouraged. So Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. But as we look in, the, in Matthew chapter 26, as we come to the end of the time when they partook of the bread and they partook of the cup, the Lord says in verse 29, I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine from now on until the day I have it with you new in my Father's kingdom. He didn't take the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing, he, he set it down and he said, we have the cup of redemption right now. Where your sins have been paid for. But one day we are all going to drink the cup of blessing together with Jesus Christ. In that place that he has prepared for us. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The Old Testament saints will be there. Those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ across the universe in all time is going to sit down together and finish the meal with a cup of the blessing what's the blessing that we will be with him forever no more sin no more sorrow no more tears no more pain we had a funeral service here Yesterday, a celebration of life that we gathered together. And, and uh, you know, those times, no matter how much you try to make it, it's a time of sorrow. People cry. People miss somebody they love. The Bible says, one day we're all going to sit down. And we're going to have that meal together with Jesus. I find it interesting. Many times, a husband, when he would be betrothed to his wife, at the betrothal period, he would, he would write a contract. And the contract would be written out. And after they wrote out the contract, they would break bread that symbolized their unity together. 
And they would drink of that cup, the wine. If you ask a Jew today why, he'll tell you tradition. It's what we do. And then that husband would go and look at his bride, and a word of encouragement he would say to her would be, Now I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Because that's where he's going to add on. He's going to add on a place to live on the father's house. And he says, I will not touch the fruit of the vine until I have it with you in my father's house. Same thing Jesus Christ is laying out here. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we look at this, it's this proclamation for a glorious future. Do you believe that? Do you believe we have a glorious future or life is just like it is now? A pain and suffering. Sickness. Disease. Starvation. Tell me that's not it. Tell me that's not the height of life. The height of life is going to be when we are all reconciled together with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To everyone who believes. Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Not you might want to think about. Must be born again. We must be cleansed by that sacrifice. We must Place our trust in Jesus Christ. We must confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. And Scripture declares, you will be saved. That is what the Lord's Supper was all about. That is what Jesus was proclaiming to the disciples. They don't quite get it. But they will. About three days from now, they're going to figure it out. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the insights that we can find on the pages of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for, God, just the the beauty that we see. Even as we come to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, as we look at, at what was so heavy on his heart, what did he do in those last 24 hours? He washed the disciples' feet, including Judas. He, he took each of their bread and he dipped it in the, in the sop and he shared a meal with them. He reached out to the end to Judas and then he told him, go do what you're going to do. And then when he sat there at the table with his true disciples, he told them, my body is your bread. My blood is your cup. Partake. Believe. Make me a part of your life. Allow me to come within and be a part 
He laid out for us the, the concept that he, he, he teaches us on the pages of Scripture that we might know Him and have a relationship because God in Christ died for me. Man, great is the mystery of godliness. That God was manifest in the flesh and died for me. And rose again to proclaim it has been paid in full. Lord, we thank you. Most of all, God, I thank you that every time we're reminded of this, rather than looking at it as as a doom, a doom of, of the crucifixion of Christ and his burial, that we would look at it as the future, the future of a meal that has not been finished. That Jesus promised to finish with every one of his true believers. Everyone who by faith comes to him. He'll finish that meal. God, as we look forward to that future, I pray, Lord, that it would encourage us. It would encourage us that what we are to be about is the gospel. Is expressing the death, burial, resurrection of our Lord and Savior by which we experience the forgiveness of sins, justification, sanctification. Ah, By whom we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Lord, I just pray that you would encourage us in these last days that when our master comes we would be found so doing proclaiming who you are in our life to a world that doesn't know you and we thank you and we praise you for it all in Jesus name we pray amen we're going to close out the-